Please turn to Acts chapter 13, where we're going to be uh, looking at John Mark and the lavishness of God's love on someone who failed. Acts chapter 13. We've been going verse by verse through this, but I want to focus especially on two verses today. And we're going to read verses 13 through 15. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Father God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would take my uh, feeble and weak lips and that you would enable me to clearly articulate that which you would have the people to hear, that you would enable us to glorify you in our responses. We bless you, Father, for this aspect of uh, the privilege that we have of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. One of the discouraging things uh, that you will see in modern missions is the high number of dropouts. Sometimes people dropping out in the first year or two that they've been on the mission field. Uh, these missionaries quit because they can't hack the uh, very difficult primitive conditions. Sometimes it's the persecution that gets them down or the insects or the disease. Uh, other times it's a conflict resolution. And when the pressures come against them from the outside, they don't have the inner resources to be able to keep uh, from quitting. And that's what happened here to John Mark. He was a quitter. And we know from later passage that it was a great shame that he was a quitter. In chapter 15, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at how to salvage such dropouts and how to instill backbone into them. Uh, but um, this issue of being a quitter affects us uh, even when we're children. Uh, children who, you know, want to give up on a math problem. Or uh, children who just feel overwhelmed with the chores that you have given to them. And we've got to teach our children very early not to be quitters. Uh, we live in a time when uh, it's harder and harder to find men and women who are willing to finish tasks that they have committed themselves to start. Uh, they are quitters. I know people who have badgered me to start a prayer meeting. We need to start a prayer meeting. And after two weeks, they're not attending the prayer meeting anymore. Other people maybe are. Uh, or they'll have a Bible study they want you to start or some other thing. And lo and behold, down the road, they're not uh, involved. And it doesn't seem to bother them in the least that they have a lack of commitment. In the same way, we have increased dropouts from marriage. I've had more than one person tell me over the past several years, I've had it. I'm through. I can't take it anymore. Of course, they could take it more, but they're like Demas that started off well in Philemon 4, but who forsook Paul in his hour of need in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. And Paul's reason is this. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. He didn't mince any words. Uh, when he was uh, judging what the issue was. And John Mark had exactly the same problem as Demas had. 
uh, in this passage. He was a quitter when the going got tough. Now, in the 20th century, I think we would tend to sympathize with uh, John Mark and think, you know, there's no big deal of his going back to Jerusalem if he's uh, not passionate about what's going on. Uh, why not? In fact, there's a new book that has come out that uh, trying to promote the ridiculous idea that if you're not, he uses the word passionate about your job, you need to go find another job. And uh, it's just a book. It's promoting more quitters. <laughs> we need less quitters, not more. Uh, many of these modern quitters would have done exactly what John Mark did here, and they would have done it in a heartbeat if they had to deal with a tough old bird like Paul or if they had to face some of the difficult uh, circumstances that John Mark did. And so let's just take a look at the context here. There were some tough transitions that John Mark had already been facing. By this time, there may have been some tension already. First change that had happened is that this missionary team was beginning to preach to the Gentiles. Now, that was not true at the beginning of this missionary trip. He was exclusively talking to the Jews. Now, for example, look at verse 5. It says, And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, I don't think it would have been very difficult for John Mark to minister to the Jews. It was a challenge because there was persecution from the Jews too, but it was not nearly the kind of challenge as verse 7 posed. From verse 7 and on, this missionary team was deliberately targeting Gentiles. Now, that would have been tough for any Jew. We've already seen that as we've gone through Acts uh, he would have gone way out of his comfort zone. Now, theoretically, John Mark already knew when he started this team that this was going to be happening, but the reality is a lot of times less glamorous than the theory. This transition can also be seen in that Saul, which is a Jewish name, is now consistently called Paul, which is a Roman name. Look at verse 9. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, now, Paul is the only member of the team who is a bona fide uh, Roman citizen. And every Roman citizen had three names. There was the praenomen, the nomen, and the cognomen. <laughs> Just terms that they use. And commentators point out this is probably the cognomen uh, that was being used. Now, if you were a Jew who was a Roman citizen, which is very rare, this was an odd thing that Paul was a Roman citizen. But if you were a Jew who was a Roman citizen, you would also have a signum which was a Jewish name, and any Jew would have called you by the signum. They would not have used the Roman name. Uh, they would have called him Saul, which was his Jewish name. And so for Luke, the Jew, to exclusively begin calling Saul, Paul, from this time on, shows that there is a transition that's been happening into Gentile ministry. And I think it's significant that Barnabas and John did not change their names at this point. In chapter 15, once Mark repents, he takes on a Roman name. I mean, he imitates what Paul is doing. But at this point, they keep their Jewish names. And I think it's an indicator they're not diving into this Gentile ministry with the same enthusiasm that the Apostle Paul is. A third transition that we see is that it is Paul who is now emerging as the de facto leader. And I think this is in part because of the ease with which he could work in the Gentile world. But I think it's in part because of the tremendous leadership abilities that Paul uh, had. Most people automatically will defer to someone who's got far greater abilities than they do. 
It, it just almost happens without thinking. I do it all the time. When I'm in the presence of a person who's uh, you know, got greater abilities, uh, we call this the pecking order. Uh, we just sense that they've got leadership abilities and we kind of defer to them. And uh, let's trace this out. Up until this chapter, it is always Barnabas and Saul. Okay, Barnabas is listed first in chapter 9 and in chapter 11. And I want you to look at the last verse of chapter 12. It says, and Barnabas and Saul returned uh, to Jerusalem. <coughs> in chapter 13, verse 1, Barnabas is listed first. In verse 2, God himself lists Barnabas as being first. He's the older gentleman by far, and it would be very natural for him to take the leadership. Look at the second sentence in verse 7. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But from this point on, Paul takes the leadership, and you can see it by the leadership initiative in verses 9 through 12 that we looked at before. You can see it in verse 13 where it speaks of Paul and his party. Huh? Paul and his party? I thought this was Barnabas's team. What's going on here? Uh, well, Barnabas was the team leader, but it becomes quite apparent that Paul is the natural leader. He understood the, the, the Roman customs. Uh, he was the one who was the natural speaker. And I don't think that Barnabas necessarily resisted this. He himself recognized Paul's giftings and his special calling. And so from this point on, you see Paul and Barnabas in that order. And it shows them united as Paul and Barnabas until the rift happens in chapter 15. For example, look at verse 46 of uh, this chapter. It says, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said. That's indicating they are united in this uh, transition in leadership. Paul and Barnabas um, said. They grew bold and said. But many commentators believe that John Mark uh, was taking offense at the fact that his uncle Barnabas was now receding in his leadership. There's no evidence that Barnabas takes offense, but many commentators believe that uh, John Mark uh, is taking offense on his behalf. The fourth transition that may have been difficult for John Mark was the transition from the wealth and comfort that he had been experiencing in chapter 12, verse 12. He grew up in a wealthy home to the deprivation and dangers he had been facing in verses 4 through 12 of our chapter. But those dangers were nothing compared to what he would be facing in the mountains. Uh, verse 14 says simply, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. Okay, Luke doesn't make a big deal about this. And I think Luke and Paul and the other members of the team, they have what it takes to tough it out. This is not a big deal. And I think they're a model for us in this. When there is suffering, we shouldn't try to you know, highlight that and make ourselves look great because of all the suffering that we've gone through. They just realize this is part of the duty that they're engaged in. And so it doesn't mention anything, but anybody who lived in that era would know that verse 14 is talking about a grueling journey. Um, verse 14 is describing a trip of over 100 miles by foot over the rugged Taurus mountain range. And we're not talking about walking on nice park paths with, uh, you know, nice camp spots that you can park out on and cozy little uh, goose down sleeping bags. There would have been cold and grueling and dangerous journeys. Now, there were numerous mountain streams that had to either be 
waded over or swum over. Um, and Paul later speaks of these as dangerous rivers, in dangers of rivers, he, he says. According to historical accounts, the route was notorious for bandits. And even the Roman army, as tough as they were, hated this area and really struggled to bring it under control and to keep it under control. Uh, commentators believe this was the territory where Paul later in Second Corinthians spoke of being in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, in dangers from Gentiles, in dangers in the wilderness, in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And so in the face of where this team is going, John Mark chickens out and he goes back to Jerusalem. As uh, Matthew Henry worded it, either he did not like the work or he wanted to go back and see his mother. Uh, but make no doubt about it, there was a definite shame that was involved in what was going on here. Now, we tend to sympathize with such quitters, but here's what Jesus had to say. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's Luke 9, verse 62. And he said that in terms of counting the cost. Now, you may still wonder whether what John Mark did was wrong. And in part, it may be because you're tempted with the same kinds of decisions. And if you were back then, you would have done the same thing. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of Peter Hammonds out there who are willing to dive boldly into danger and risk and suffer all kinds of suffering for the cause of Christ. And so, let me make a case for the fact that what John Mark did here was indeed shameful. Please turn with me to Acts 15. And I'm going to look at verses 37 through 8, which is Luke's commentary on what happened here and the way in which uh, Paul and Luke interpreted it. Luke, uh, Acts 15, and uh, let me read verses 37 through 39. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but... Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. And I should point out that um, Cyprus was an island that both of them had grown up on. They're quite familiar with it. It's a much easier place for them to, uh, to go to, much more civilized. No one questioned what Paul's opinion was on this matter. Everybody's united amongst the commentaries. He felt so strongly about the danger that John Mark posed to the team if he were to come along that uh, he would not budge. Paul said, in effect, there is no way, no way that Mark is going to go on this dangerous journey. He doesn't have what it takes. And so for Paul, this was really a character issue. Uh, that he was thinking about. And Barnabas' desire to bring John Mark along was not a disagreement over whether or not uh, John Mark did a wrong thing in Acts chapter 13. I think chapter 13 indicates Barnabas agreed with Paul. He stuck with Paul. And uh, there was an indication what John Mark did was wrong. But basically, he's just saying, let's give him a second chance. Okay, that's, that's the only area of disagreement. Secondly, Luke's opinion can be seen in the phrase who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And here's some other translations that bring out nuances of the Greek who had abandoned them. Uh, several versions have who deserted them. Amplified Bible has who quit and deserted them. Now, Luke is saying John Mark bailed out on the work, left them in the lurch here 
and his leaving had moral problems because the word for departed is a word that can mean this, quote, rebellion, abandonment, defection. Uh, Another dictionary adds to that list, emphasis upon separation and possible lack of concern for what has been left. Uh, Another dictionary says that this can be uh, translated, depending on the context, rebellion, abandonment, state of apostasy, defection, bill of divorce, deserter, to act unfaithfully contrary to duty. Uh, Strong says that for the active tense, it has the idea of actively instigating a revolt. My main dictionary says cause to revolt, mislead to distance oneself from some person or thing. So every single dictionary that I have says this is a moral um, issue that John Mark had failed on. It's a moral issue. Now, which of those nuances of dictionary meanings are intended here? We don't know for sure. Uh, There's a place in Acts where it's translated to incite to rebellion. So the question has come in some commentaries. Did he try to undermine Paul and try to convince all of the rest of the team members to uh, ditch this plan to go over the Taurus Mountains. We don't know, but obviously Paul felt very hurt from this for years to come. I mean, this was something that put a a real rift uh, between the two of them. And quitters rarely have any idea of the enormous damage that they can do to the Lord's work uh, through their quitting. And so I say without any doubt that what John Mark did was shameful. Can this happen to us? I would say absolutely. Yes, it can. If God does not keep us walking in his grace. And John Mark is such a wonderful example of God's grace changing a quitter into a person uh, who really has backbone. But at the beginning, I don't think anybody realized that John Mark had this character weakness. Here's a guy who's got zeal. He's got uh, a real desire to serve the Lord. You can even see it in chapter 15, the fact he's repented. He said, man, I really do want to be a part of this missions trip uh, that you are going on. Um, He really wanted to be in ministry. No one would question the wonderful heritage that John Mark had. From Acts 12.12, we know that his mother was wealthy. Uh, She was a praying woman. She was a woman of faith. He himself was a man of prayer. Uh, He had a great uncle. In um, uh, Barnabas, a wonderful man. Colossians 4.10 calls Mark the cousin of Barnabas in the New King James uh, Bible. But the King James and other translations call him the nephew of Barnabas. So the, the Greek is ambiguous. It could go either direction. But a lot of commentaries say because of the age of Barnabas, it's likely it was the nephew that is uh, speaking about. Now, in this series, we've already seen that Barnabas was an amazingly godly man. He was noted by the whole church as an encourager, a generous man, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, a gifted preacher. We know from 1 Peter 5.13 that John Mark was close to Peter and perhaps was even converted by Peter. Uh, He calls him my son. Um, There are some people who think that he may have been one of the 70 disciples that was sent out by Christ uh, so for preaching. So he had even been tested for a short while, and that may have been one of the reasons why they were willing to take him onto the team. But he had a failure of nerve. And let me tell you something. <laughs> it's not just on the mission field that you can have a failure of nerve. Uh, parents many times uh, quit their responsibilities to discipline their children. 
sometimes politicians can have a failure of nerve because they're a tiny minority in the House of Representatives and they wonder, man, do I really stand up for this? Businessmen can have a failure of nerve to make the ethical right decision uh, because they might lose money or they might lose face with somebody. Um, there are judges who uh, lack the nerve to make the right decision because it's such an unpopular decision and they don't want to be hated by everybody. But every one of us uh, can be tempted to not do the right thing because we've got aching muscles and we're bored and we're tired and, and there's other discouragements that come in. I can assure you that there are John Marks in this congregation. I know you. some of you are John Marks because you do not follow through on the commitments that you have made to the Lord and to other people. You let other people down simply because you don't feel like continuing. It just doesn't bother you. That is not to be taken lightly. God treats it as a serious sin and the uh, disciples here treat it as a serious sin. God wants our yes to be yes and our no to be no. He wants our word to be as good as gold. <clears throat> and um, let me give to you an example from Ecclesiastes. There are other passages which say that uh, if we make a vow, we better keep it, even if it's to our own hurt. But here he says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And in America, we simply do not keep our commitment seriously. Uh, we don't see it as a serious sin. This word is translated elsewhere as to apostatize. Now, I don't think he apostatized completely. And most commentaries don't. There are a couple who do. But most don't. But... It's interesting that it uses such a strong word to describe John Mark. It's saying we need to treat quitting in the same light as apostasy. It's a serious sin that needs to be repented of. If we want to be used by God to change our nation, we're going to have to persevere uh, in the face of loneliness. Why? Because there are going to be times when a lot of people aren't going to want to join the charge. We're all excited and we can't find anybody else that's excited about the things we're involved in. In the face of discouragement, opposition, persecution, and slander. Uh, the cool thing about John Mark is that he was restored. Even though in chapter 15, Paul didn't feel he could take the risk on that particular uh, mission trip, Barnabas saw something in him that enabled him to believe in John Mark and take another risk, and it paid off. Twenty years later, we find John Mark working with Paul, facing the risk of getting imprisoned in Nero's prisons by ministering to Paul, even when everybody else has bailed out and has forsaken him. And we see that Barnabas must have ministered uh, to this young nephew of him and given him some backbone. And that's a story when we get to chapter 15. But let me just anticipate real briefly. In Colossians 4.10, Mark is listed as one of Paul's team members some 20 years later. He speaks of the greetings from Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. In Philemon 24, he speaks, sends greetings from his fellow laborer, Mark. In 2 Timothy 4, in context of lamenting, everybody else has forsaken me. Here's what he says about Paul. He's been giving his first defense at Caesar. Other people are even scared to be identified with him. And he says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me in ministry. And so what a great tribute to a guy who has finally come around. He used to be a quitter, but now he is being faithful whenever other people are being uh, quitters. 
Of course, the ultimate glory that Mark had was that he wrote the gospel that's named after him, the gospel of Mark. Quitters can change. They can be given backbone by God's grace. And so I love the character of John Mark. Uh, it, uh, I can identify with the fact that he was tempted to quit, but I, I also appreciate the fact here's a guy who is given change by God's grace to persevere. Now, we could just end the sermon there, and I think it would be a complete sermon, but we have a tendency to rationalize. I know how the human mind works, and we tend to think our case is unique. We're different. We're not quitters. <laughs> uh, we're just being reasonable. These other people are calling for unreasonable tasks. And I think of the time when Peter Hammond made a trip to his mission station in Sudan. He had uh, left the new ground crew there, and he was coming back at the appointed time. And I tell you, they had gone through a horrendously difficult trip in order to make the commitments that they had uh, said that they would keep, but he felt the ground crew needed their support and definitely the church needed their support. And anyway, they had promised that they would uh, come. When he got there, the ground crew had abandoned their posts, had dismissed the school, had headed back to South Africa just hours before Peter's team had arrived. Now, the national leaders were really upset with them. Uh, they had instituted a board of inquiry trying to figure out uh, why these people had been so disrespectful and so damaging to what was going on there. In fact, they rebuked Peter. How come you didn't test these people before you brought them onto the field? And he had to apologize and say, yeah, we really should have tested these people uh, first. But anyway, that may be in part why this group of John Marks had quickly fled uh, when they heard that uh, Peter Hammond was just uh, hours away from getting to the station. They didn't want to. And it may have been the reason why earlier in the week they had told, they'd radioed him, don't come, abort the mission because there's torrential rains. And um, Peter Hammond had radioed them back and he said, uh, no way, we don't quit our obligations just because of torrential rains. Uh, we've always come through in situations like that. Besides that, we're going to need you to bring equipment because the bridge is washed out. Bring equipment to the river, which wasn't too far away uh, from the station. But anyway, when uh, they uh, got there, uh, uh, they, uh, all of the people had left. In his newsletter, Peter said, Over the years, I have seen many people crack up or give up under the severe stresses of the field. Extreme heat, clouds of insects, tropical diseases and prolonged dangers, along with all the cross-cultural complications, linguistic difficulties, and logistical frustrations can combine together to drive even normally strong people to bitterness or irrational despair. And apparently, uh, that's what had happened to them. Now, what hurt Peter is that Tim and Hansi, who came overland by Land Rover, and Peter and John, who came partway by air and faced a great deal of difficulties getting there uh, the rest of the way by land, they faced far greater uh, tasks in order to relieve this team. They had been going through all kinds of stuff. In fact, John had almost died in the river. Uh, they had no way of getting across because nobody was there to meet them. And so they didn't even have the gloves that would be needed uh, to go through all the thorns and whatnot. 
But uh, John said, there's nothing we can do. The plane's taken off. And they said, we're foolish to even come here. We're not coming back. So they had to go across the river. So they went hand over hand over a cable that was still across the river. And it was shuddering and looking like it was about ready to snap and come off. Shredded with um, their hands. It just He said there was meat all along the, the cable. Uh, from their legs and uh, his legs and hands, and he fell off at one point. And Peter Hammond was thinking, "Oh man, this guy's going to drown because there's big trees that are rushing down." And he got across, and he managed to get all of the pulleys and the equipment to be able to get the other people and all of the uh, all of the equipment across that they had. In fact, when you read the recount, I just read it again this past week. He gives you the willies, you know what they went through. But anyway, when they got there, it's a disaster. Uh, everything's everything's gone. The church is angry at the attitudes, the desertion of the ground crew, and it felt like a kick in the stomach to Peter and his team. And I imagine that is exactly what Paul felt like. You know what? The ground crew had a totally different perspective than Peter Hammond. Totally different perspective. Their attitude was, what kind of lunatics would come here in the kind of storm that we've been experiencing? What kind of lunatics would try to cross this river that the bridge is washed out when that cable looks like it's going to snap at any moment, uh, what kind of lunatics, you know, would uh, <laughs> allow their hands and their, their legs to be shredded like that? Uh, this is not reasonable. This is lunacy. These guys have an overheightened sense of duty. What kind of a lunatic fringe are these missionaries who push through on the one team despite the fact this guy's got tetanus fever? Uh, he's running a high fever. Is uh, Peter insane to land on that airstrip covered with water? What kind of lunatics are Peter and John to crawl through an area with bullets whizzing around and thudding into the branches and the trees? He should have stayed home and just let us quit. And I'm sure that similar thoughts were going through John Mark's mind. And here's what I imagine him thinking. Paul's not being reasonable. He won't slow down even though he's had fever. He's got malaria. Uh, I think that uh, Sir William Ramsey builds a pretty credible case uh, for Galatians 4 teaching that Paul contracted malaria in verse 13 of our chapter. And so when, when Mark sees Paul's not even willing to take reasonable care of his body for the sake of the gospel, it makes him nervous. What in the world is Paul going to be doing in the future that's maybe even crazier? And he's probably thinking, hey, I'm not a weenie. I've endured suffering too, but there is a thin line between foolhardiness and courage. And I think that Paul has stepped over into foolhardiness. Paul travels too fast. He won't listen to his body. He takes too many risks. And it's fine. If he wants to push his body like that, that's fine. But he shouldn't expect everybody else to be pushing themselves in the way in which he does so. Listen to some of the things that Paul did on his second, uh, first, second, and third missionary journeys, and you'll get a feel for what um, John Mark was dreading. We're trying to give John Mark's perspective here, okay? Get, a, get us a little bit sympathized with him. He was dreading exactly these things that happened to Paul. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul said, To the present hour, we, notice it's not just Paul, we, it's his whole team that he's uh, talking about, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. In Second Corinthians, Paul said, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, 
in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now, would you have signed up if you knew that was the next portion of your journey? <laughs> Can you sympathize a little bit with what Mark was going through? Okay, I think we do need to have a little bit of sympathy for him. I doubt that Mark saw himself as a deserter. Uh, I, I doubt that uh, he saw himself as a quitter. He probably saw himself as being reasonable. It wasn't until much later that Mark understood the extent to which he had undermined a lot of what Paul was seeking to accomplish. And Paul was probably thinking, look, if you don't want to be on the team, that's fine. This is a free world. But if you're going to sign up on the team, you better follow through on your commitment. I think that's what Paul's uh, thinking was on this. But you know that Mark had his reasons for quitting. In fact, I think Mark's reasons for quitting are better than anybody's reasons in this room for being tempted to quit. Far better reasons. And so that's looking at the problem from John Mark's perspective. Uh, Paul was a tough cookie to, to work with. If the only one you would talk to was John Mark, you'd probably have sided with him and said, yeah, uh, I can understand that. Paul is being unreasonable here. Now let's look at the problem from Barnabas' perspective. Barnabas is a pretty reasonable man. We've already pointed out that Barnabas graciously allows Paul to take the lead. Te <clears throat> Technically, he is the leader of the team. Chapters 9, 11, 12, and the beginning of chapter 13. And I'm sure that Barnabas felt he had a right to be peeved with Paul in chapter 15 when Paul unilaterally slammed down his idea of bringing Mark. Now, actually, to give a little bit of balance there, I think this is a second missionary journey that they're starting on. I think any team member has a right to say whether he's going to come along or not. And Paul's just saying, this is, this is going to be a disaster if we bring him along. So, we'll just throw that in for the moment. But the transition is made obvious by Luke that where it started out Barnabas and Saul becomes Barnabas and Paul, then Paul and his party, and then Paul, Paul, Paul. And as gentle and encouraging as Barnabas was, that had to hurt a little bit. And I'm sure it fed into the eruption that happened in chapter 15. <clears throat> Secondly, it wasn't just Paul who was let down. Luke and Barnabas were let down too. In chapter 15, it becomes clear that the work that Mark had left behind had to be picked up by the whole team. And so Barnabas is thinking, look, what are you getting bent out of shape? I had to pick up the slack of Mark as well. You know, you're not the only one that's been hurt on this thing, and I'm willing to give him a little bit of slack and give him a second chance. Third, by the time you get to chapter 15, there may have been other things that have finally led even patient Barnabas to explode. Barnabas knows his nephew better than anybody else on the team, 
And sure, he caved in under the pressures, but let's work with him. Okay, let's give a little bit of grace. Even Peter denied his Lord. Even Peter, you know, quit in the great hour of his master's need. And so let's have a little bit of grace. I think this is one of the reasons why Peter speaks endearingly of Mark. And 1 Peter 5.13 is Mark, my son. And so what's happening here is that Barnabas is approaching this relationally. And he's saying, you know, we can't just look at this in terms of a logical decision. Yes, I understand, Paul, that your decision makes perfectly logical sense. But let's shepherd his heart a little bit, okay? Let's not just look at it in terms of, of, uh, you know, cut and dried decision making. And by the way, we need to keep in mind that Barnabas is a completely white-haired man. Commentators conclude this both from his age and the fact that in chapter 14, Barnabas is mistaken by the Greek pagans as being the Greek god Zeus and Paul is mistaken for the Greek god Hermes because he's the speaker and this guy looks so, you know, so uh, uh, like the leader, a leader, I guess. He's an old man, white-haired. And this means that Barnabas must have been really pushed to the limit. Here's Paul just traipsing along. And even young John Mark has a hard time keeping up. Now, Barnabas is keeping up, but I bet you he could sympathize with what John Mark's complaints were about. It's hard to keep up with this guy. But at the same time, from chapter 13, it's clear that Barnabas knows that John Mark was wrong. He himself did not buy into the insurrection. And John Mark left on his own without infecting the rest of the team with his rebellion. Uh, Barnabas proved a steadfast and united companion to Paul. But I think he could see two sides to the question. He knew Paul was right, but I'm sure he did not agree with Paul's rough and cut and dried approach. Let's look at Paul's perspective. You've got to realize where Mark left them in the lurch. They are at Perga, partway up to Antioch Pisidian. If you look at the map, you'll see they've already gone inland partway. Now, if John Mark was responsible for a support role uh, on this team, as most commentators uh, believe, then John Mark left them at the worst place possible. Uh, It would have been better not to come on the trip at all than to make the whole team dependent upon him and his support role and then to leave them at a place where they can't get a replacement, to leave them at the toughest portion of the journey. If Mark had even bailed out a few days earlier, then they might have been able to scramble, get a replacement or come up with alternative plans. But to bail out at Perga shows absolutely no consideration for the trouble and perhaps even the danger that this would leave the rest of the team in. It was just irresponsible. It was a failure of duty. It was not thinking of the team. Very highly inconsiderate. And that's why one of the definitions of that word to depart includes in its definition to desert with a lack of concern for what has been left, unquote. There's more that would make Paul say, no way, no way. According to Galatians 4.13, Paul went into this portion of the trip very sick. Uh, According to a long essay by uh, William Ramsey, Paul got malaria in the marshes that they had gone through. The whole area was just rife with uh, malaria. And to have John Mark bail out on his responsibility during this time of his incredible weakness, miserable sickness, made the desertion even harder to bear. Third, as I've mentioned, um, the word departed shows there is a moral character issue that Paul's concerned about. Has this moral character issue been resolved? Fourth, 
In chapter 15, verse 36, when they're making plans for the second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas are planning to travel to exactly the same areas that John Mark had been worn out by before. Okay, that's the context of Paul's refusal. His, his attitude is, look, we're going to the same area where he quit before. If he couldn't hack it back then, what's to make you think he can hack it right now? Uh, this would simply uh, should not be treated as a training trip. This is a serious missions trip. And there has to be solidarity on the team to make it. It's one thing to have the possibility that a new team member might crack and might bail out, but to deliberately and knowingly put a weak link into this missionary journey is not responsible. It's not wise. And so I think that Paul was right, even though he was a little bit too crusty in the way in which he handled the problem. I think he was right. And I think that Barnabas realized that he was right because Barnabas doesn't send um, John Mark into a difficult region. He takes them back to Cyprus where they've been born and where they were raised, where it's civilized. And they did a good ministry in Cyprus. What are some other lessons that can be learned? Well, first, try to look at the problems from the perspective of other people. We are many times so consumed with how some decision will affect us negatively that we fail to think about how our decision or our preferred decision would affect other people. We need to look at the other person's perspective. John Mark appears to have been blind to this. Um, Sure, he could point to Paul's unreasonable idiosyncrasies, but he was failing to consider Paul's legitimate concerns. And I think of all three missionaries had been looking at the problem from the other people's perspective, maybe the whole blow up could have been averted. Uh, I think we've already seen from this complicated situation that John, Barnabas and Paul all have legitimate complaints. They all have legitimate perspectives. Uh, Paul had to learn not to measure what other people can do by his tremendous stamina. And by the way, pathbreakers are often this way. Uh, Whether it's a pathbreaker in theology like a Jay Adams or as people on the mission field, uh, I understand that um, uh, one of the SIM founders, uh, a guy by the name of Stuart, I think it is, uh, oh man, he just leave people in the dust. And when he would make his treks with his teams, Sometimes the the people would just collapse on the ground in exhaustion. And instead of being patient with them and letting them, yeah, let's take a rest for half an hour. He'd march around and around and around them, you know, just anxious to go on. And finally, they're so embarrassed that this older gentleman is just marching, marching that they get up and, you know, and they're just wearily tromping on. That's just not right. That's not a good way to, to, to handle the weaknesses of other people. And the scriptures themselves indicate that we have to have a bearing for those who are weaker. Paul learned that in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, where he said, Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Now, I agree, totally agree with Paul's decision not to take Mark on that strenuous journey. But it might have been worth evaluating whether there could be another journey or whether there could uh, be an adjustment to this journey. Uh, probably Barnabas was the best one at doing what 2 Corinthians 10.7 said and not looking only at the outward appearance. But all three of them, I think it would have been good if they could have trouble shot by looking at the problem from the perspective of others. Now, it's easy to say from the pulpit. It's much harder to practice uh, when you're in the emotion of the moment. Very difficult to practice. But we have to ask God, Lord, please 
Help me not to be so self-centered. All I can see is my own problems. Help me to look at what it is that they're concerned about. A second lesson we can learn is that we need to give grace to others and seek to put up with their idiosyncrasies. Now, this is different than the first one. The first one is where you're looking for the truth in the other people's perspective. This is saying, even when they're wrong, even when they're boneheaded or rockheaded, can't we put up with some of their, uh, their idiosyncrasies? John Mark learned to value Paul's driven personality and he became patient with Paul years later. Paul, on his own part, pleaded with others saying, I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. 2 Corinthians 11.1 1. But Paul, too, learned to value the various personalities of each team member, even the weak ones. Years later, he said, we who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Romans 15.1. In another place, he said, uphold the weak, be patient with all. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. A third lesson we can learn is that we need to ask God to help us consider the consequences of quitting. Now, there were immediate consequences of Mark's uh, reaction uh, uh, to the malaria-weary Paul. But we've already seen that there was also a ripple effect that happened in chapter 15. It led to a rift between Paul and Barnabas two chapters from now. could very easily have led to disaffection and, and defection of others. And praise God, it did not. But there may have been other ripple effects. We need to also consider the uh, consequences to us. Think of the shame that it will bring. And if you're not motivated by, by that, think of the lack of credibility that you're going to have. If you bail out now, then people like Paul are not going to trust you with greater responsibilities later. And that's true within the church. You know, if you're not faithful with the tasks that you have been given now, why in the world would the session trust you with greater responsibilities? As Christ said, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Luke 16, verse 11. A second consequence, you'll miss out on tasting of the glory of God's supernatural grace. If the only things you take on are the easy things, you're never going to experience the greatness of God's grace. Uh, Christ gave the impossible tasks in the Sermon on the Mount to enable Christians to demonstrate they have access to grace that the world does not have. They can love the unlovable. They can bless those who curse them. Uh, they can persevere when others are quitting. And so... It is often only when we get to the end of our own natural resources that we experience God's supernatural coming through. <clears throat> Too many people quit before they experience God's energizing power. Third consequence is that the relationships and ministries that you destroy by quitting may take years to rebuild. Now, it took a while to rebuild with Barnabas. It took 20 years to rebuild with Paul <clears throat> before he became a valuable team member with Paul. And so, yes, we can have forgiveness, but don't think, you know, that you're just going to easily get back to the same place that you were at before. Uh, one of the consequences is listed in Proverbs 18:19. A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. Now, you can win him just like you can win a strong city. You got your work cut out for you. So there's consequences. Fourth lesson, and we're just going to skim over this real quick, uh, is we can learn we need to learn to ask God to give us wisdom not to make commitments we can't follow through on. You know, learn to say no. Finally, and this principle balances the previous one, we need to learn to depend upon God's supernatural. We should not be offended when leaders in the church ask us to do 
seemingly impossible tasks that require the supernatural. We should take that as a compliment. Too many times we depend upon ourselves and our own strength. But I think every person needs to learn how to experience divine grace, divine empowering for what we're going through. Now, there comes a time when only God can uphold you. Here's another way of looking at it. To quit when Goliaths appear may seem natural to the world. But to those of us who have experienced God's grace, it is so discouraging, it's so disheartening to see everybody fleeing just because there's Goliaths out there. God deliberately gives divine appointments of Goliaths into every person's life in order to test them, in order to stretch them, in order to teach them to rest upon the everlasting arms of the Almighty. If we could do it alone, then there wouldn't be any need for God's grace, would there? I think that's the point. The call to persevere in the face of pain and discomfort is simply a call to persevere in grace. Okay, It is not legalism. Don't settle for less than the supernatural. Live by faith. Let me end with a poem. I've not been able to find the author of this poem, but I think it is a challenge that fits the situation of John Mark very well. The poet said, When things go wrong as they sometimes will, when the road you're trudging seems all uphill, when the funds are low and the debts are high, and you want to smile, but you have to sigh, when care is pressing you down a bit, Rest if you must, but don't you quit. Life is queer with its twists and turns, as every one of us sometimes learns, and many a failure turns about when he might have won had he stuck it out. So don't give up, though the pace seems slow, for you may succeed with another blow. Often the goal is nearer than it seems to a faint and faltering man. Often the struggler has given up when he might have captured the victor's cup. And he learned too late when the night slipped down how close he was to the golden crown. Success is failure turned inside out, the silver tint of the clouds of doubt. And you never can tell how close you are. It may be near when it seems afar. So stick to the fight when your heart is hit. It's when things seem worst that you mustn't quit. May God save us from being quitters. Father God, we come to You and we pray that You would help us to be folk who look more to You, Your greatness, Your power, than we do to the mountains and the giants and the difficulties that we face. Help us, Father, to not be quitters. Help us to have our Word being as good as gold when we make a commitment to follow through on that commitment no matter how difficult the following through may be. Father, I pray that we would learn, those of us who have been quitters, how to have the backbone that Mark later got, standing strong when others were failing. I pray, Father, that Your rich grace would rest upon this congregation. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.